It's the 1st of May, 2016, and this is episode 291. Hey folks, Adam Bielvine here along with Stephanie Murphy, and uh, this week we've got special guest Brian Hoffman, one of the founders of the Open Bazaar Project, which recently launched into a public alpha? What, what are you calling this release? Oh, we're calling this our first full release, yeah. Your first full release? Oh, so this is, this is the 1.0 milestone. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. So I've been, um, you know, the first day it came out, I uh, downloaded and installed the client and set up a store and it was really easy and I really enjoyed the experience. For people who have no idea what I'm talking about, what is OpenBazaar? So OpenBazaar is a desktop application that you download and it's peer-to-peer. So um, there's no central servers that are required to connect to all of the the software applications talk to each other and you can create a online marketplace very similar to what you see with eBay or Etsy and uh, you can sell anything to anyone anywhere in the world using Bitcoin uh, for absolutely free. So when you say you can sell anything to anyone in the world for absolutely free and that it's peer-to-peer basically what you're saying is that this is not a normal type of store that you would, you know, sign up with a service and create. This is an entirely new, essentially decentralized network based around these store listings. Exactly. Um, it's, it's kind of a paradigm shift, I think, from the traditional marketplace model, which is just a website you, you register on and, and sign up for. But it's uh, an application that you run completely on your own. There are projects kind of all over the spectrum of, of ideological versus you know, like practical, I guess you might say. And Open Bazaar is one that has struck me for a long time as being really on the ideological side of this. And the product that you guys have delivered is one that I think does deliver on the vision that you originally set forth, which is again, this decentralized network of stores. But again, getting into it more, it's really made me like, I I appreciate that there's a paradigm shift here, but I'm not sure why it matters. And I'm hoping you can kind of talk to us a little bit about that. Why is it important to decentralize stores? What's wrong with eBay or what's wrong with any of these other platforms that someone might be using that makes it preferable to actually operate your own store on your own computer? Because one of the things about it is that like, if you uh, are hosting your store on your own computer, then your computer has to have a stable internet connection and it has to be you know, open all the time if it's a laptop. And so there are, kind of, like, there are reasons why someone might want to pay you know, 20 bucks or whatever a month to someone else to operate a store service for them. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you have to really go back to the genesis of this project, which was through the the idea of dark market, which I, you know, on a previous podcast we did, we kind of discussed the origins, but the idea was that they were trying to create a decentralized Silk Road, which couldn't be shut down. For that vision, I think it's it's clear what the the value proposition is, right? It's, you have these people that want to sell something that they just literally can't can't use mainstream services for, mainly drugs or, or whatever, and need a place to be able to do it. And so, you know, that's clear, you know, that it would be valuable to those types of individuals. And our vision is kind of this broader sense, which is maybe some of the best things about having a decentralized marketplace uh, could, could be beneficial to the mainstream as well. Like maybe there are aspects of it that are positive that don't necessarily just cater to illicit goods. And so that's kind of that's kind of the vision that we've we've kind of altered from the dark market uh, piece. One of the one of the funny things about the Bitcoin space is because it is so ideological. I think what that original project 
kind of came out as or was pitched as and, and where we're at two years later has become somewhat distorted in about a billion different directions. And so, you know, what we've released, I'm sure there are people that are like probably hugely disappointed or maybe there's some that are surprisingly happy about what, what it did. And there's a bunch of people in between. But I think, you know, some of the efficiencies that it brings to e-commerce in general is that there really is this huge segment of gray market goods that I think that a lot of the marketplaces just opt out of by default because it's difficult. It's sticky legally. It's what would be an example of that? A really odd and, and great example of this, and this is this is actually real. We have a vendor, for instance, on Open Bazaar right now who's selling some fetish style project products. So, for instance, he sells um, used uh, men and women's underwear. <laughs> very odd market, right? Like sell your panties on Open Bazaar. <laughs> exactly, right? And um, with Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, see, that's the thing. It's like this is like a match made in heaven because you have this product that you can't list on other merch marketplaces. You're going to get it kicked off of eBay or wherever. And you have these people that want to get this good. There's a demand, but they want to be discreet. They don't want to pay with their credit card. They don't want to do these things, right? So you have this this marriage of Bitcoin and a marketplace. It's perfect for the style of good. And, and I'm using this as an example because I literally spent an hour talking to this guy and in, in kind of trying to understand why Open Bazaar was appealing to him. That's really interesting, actually. I mean, I could I could think of some examples too, like. I don't know. There's certain, there's definitely things you can't sell on eBay. One thing that comes to mind is like, cert, like cash sometimes you can't sell on eBay or like, uh, certain gifts, gift cards and things like that. I don't know exactly the specifics, but there, there definitely are restrictions. So you can't sell firearms. You can't sell drugs, but you know, a drug may be legal or like, for instance, cannabis is legal in some jurisdictions and not in others. And so what do you do? eBay just kind of bans it in a blanket way. I think there are definitely a lot of those gray area products. Now, whether or not that market segment is actually as big as, as we kind of think it might be, that still remains to be proven. But, you know, you brought up like the, the marijuana piece, which is that product is legal in some jurisdictions, right? But the default, once again, for these incumbent marketplaces is to just avoid it, right? Because it's difficult, it's sticky. They don't know what their legal obligations are. They don't know what the risk is to shut in, shutting down the rest of their, their products. And so they just avoid it. But the demand does not go away, right? By decentralizing it, by kind of removing that risk piece of the centralized business, you know, people are free to trade and the tool provides an efficient way for them to do that, that, that still is secure, private, and quick and easy to use. That's really interesting. I was curious, Brian, uh, so that was like a little bit of a tangent. We talked about examples of products that might be on Open Bazaar. Tell us like more specifically some of the ways that you think it might have diverged from the original vision. Can you just talk about that a little bit in more specific detail? You know, I think one of the one of the main ways that it has diverged, and I, and I kind of sigh when I say that because the original vision of, of Dark Market was very kind of vague. Like, how it was going to work, how it was going to be built. I mean, the code was written in 24 hours. So, you know, there wasn't a lot there to begin with. So this happened in 2014 at, at uh, this hackathon, right, in Toronto? Yeah, literally like almost two years to the day. I think it was like a week later than now, two years ago. 
Right. So, yeah, a lot has happened in that time and a lot has not happened, right? <laughs> as far as like, you know, the development of Dark Wallet, you know, much to some people's disappointment who wanted to use it. Sorry, get, get back to your story. I totally interrupted you. I just wanted to bring in that history of how OpenZar, where the genesis was. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so the vision of a silk road that can't be shut down, which is basically the tagline, you know, obviously the, the software has changed a lot from that because in order to have a truly silk road focused storefront or marketplace, you most likely need to be leveraging something like Tor hidden services or, or something that would make it so that when you're running a marketplace, you, you can't be tracked down, you can't be, uh, you know, arrested, prosecuted, etc. And right now, the way that OpenBazaar works is your node is not really like this super anonymous node. It's not, it's not a hidden service, so to speak, on, on the dark web. It is exposed as a normal web application would be if you stood up your own website. You know, we've explained this, I think, several times through our blogs and stuff about why we did that architecturally, you know, a mix of technical challenges as well as timing. But I think that, you know, people who are coming to this and say, well, you sold us this vision of, you know, drugs and, you know, uh, weapons and, and I can sell all this crazy stuff, but, you know, and not get caught. I, don't, I just I don't think that that kind of marries up with the fork that we had. To be fair, you weren't really the one who was promoting that vision. Whatever you build, there's, there's always going to be some critiques about what you didn't do, right? It doesn't matter how great it is. Um, we've got a little bit of that after release. You know, it's like, well, we waited two years and it doesn't have this or it doesn't have that or it doesn't do this. We take the critiques, you know, pretty seriously and, and we try to figure out where we can put it on the roadmap if it makes sense. Privacy is, is super important to us. Um, it's not like there's this free-for-all for your data on OpenBazaar that just, um, you know, everything is, is, is out there. Everything is encrypted. Your connections to each other are, are fully encrypted. Your messaging is encrypted. Your data is encrypted. What you're really, the only thing that really is kind of vulnerable at the moment is that your node has to be reachable across the network from other peers. And so naturally, you have to be able to get to an IP address and so, you know, obviously IPs are not completely anonymous and, and you know, it doesn't take a, a long time for a law enforcement agent to, to track you down if you're doing something illegal. Could you use OpenBazaar through a VPN to obscure your IP address? Yeah, you, you sure could. Okay. There's always that option. You know, one of the main pillars of our project has been we're, we're super transparent, right? Like we always get people asking, how are you making money? What are you spending your donation funds on? What are you guys going to be doing in the future? You know, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on for a, you know, a long time. And we've tried to answer all those questions as, as, you know, as thoroughly as possible. You know, and we welcome that because in the end, it's a community project, right? Like you, you even mentioned this. It started as a side project. And the only reason it got to where it is now is because you know, people were very passionate about it. They contributed their free time to, to helping the open source project grow and, and become this. So to ignore feedback is, is to our own detriment, I think. So it seems like the users who have the greatest incentive to adopt this are the ones that are basically not served by the existing system. So on the one hand, that might be things that are socially, you know, questionable, like perhaps the used underwear business. And then on the other side, you've got the stuff that's, you know, might be socially whatever, but it's legally not permissible wherever that's happening. So 
is that the market that you think that you know will will pick traction? Will find traction on uh, Open Bazaar, you know, and just like kind of do those extra privacy things themselves, or are you thinking that that might be a, a, a sector that uses the tool and uses it with those extra things? But really, this is intended for markets that are other than those than than those two, really. Well, I mean, it's important to note that the you know the development team for Open Bazaar is, is actually pretty small and. To really create a team that is senior developers that are experts in anonymizer technology, networking, uh, Bitcoin, you know, computer you know, web applications. I mean, let, let me rephrase the question: Who are you making this product for? What is the what is the user like? The one particular user, or if you have three different types of users, who who is this product for? Who's really going to be the one getting value out of it? Okay, so there's there's kind of two answers to that. The short term answer is. It's certainly people that have a need for this type of marketplace, right? Like we talked about, these more underserved type individuals that are they can't they can't use these other marketplaces, right? Like I think that's the kind of user that's going to bootstrap this technology. I think somebody who's just selling, you know, a T-shirt or something that's not you know Bitcoin related, you know, probably sees it being more easy and efficient to use the other tools still. And so it's going to take some time to convince those people that this is a viable alternative. It's just like what you're seeing on uh, in Bitcoin in general. Like Bitcoin, let's be honest, it's not it's not a mainstream thing yet, right? Like I mean, people are aware of it, but you don't you don't run into like everybody who is using it. You you get people that are like, "Oh, you're a Bitcoin person." Someday when you know, if or when it becomes a more mainstream type of payment mechanism, then I think this this is when something like Open Bazaar, if it's still around, it's going to be it's going to blow up. It's because it offers some advantages over those other marketplaces that I think is super attractive. I mean, you know, we 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 kind of talked about it gets around regulatory issues for people, but you know, there's also the the costs associated with it. You know, provided that Bitcoin doesn't become too expensive to use, but you know, you save on fees. So you know, for instance, our own we set up our own market. On Open Bazaar this week, and we've sold over 200 um, packages of stickers and like these pins within a couple of days, and we paid something like a dollar in in Bitcoin fees or something. Wow! And that goes just to the Bitcoin network. Those are like just transaction fees. Exactly. Oh, okay. So how do you make money off of this, or do you? <laughs> the Open Bazaar project itself doesn't make money, and and that's you know the reason for that is because it's an open protocol. And, and if we were to insert some kind of centralized piece of it, or like run it, you know, like make ourselves the mandatory escrow agent or something uh, to take a cut, you know, somebody would most likely just fork it and remove that code, it would be too easy. So what we've, we've decided is that, you know, if we build this marketplace, we can attract buyers and sellers, and they're doing a lot of volume on there, that there are going to inherently be some gaps that we can fill by providing additional services. You know, one thing, for instance, is that when you remove that middleman, what do people do? Fire protection, for instance. If you complain to eBay about something, you usually can get some kind of recourse, right? Like they have the, the ability to unwrap a transaction or they like refund you your money or, or whatever. In this case, since you're taking that, that kind of organization out of there, there may still be that need. The only difference here is that those valuable services are now optional. They're ad hoc. They're kind of an a la carte type thing. So if you need them, then you can purchase them. We can provide them to you. 
if you're an advanced merchant and you want some kind of insurance or you want advanced inventory management or you want better search experience or any number of different kinds of valuable services that could be built on the ecosystem, those are the things that we're going to be going after. So you guys are doing the free concert with lemonade stand model. Yeah, exactly. Because when you think about it, um, you know, for instance, like a movie theater, a movie theater doesn't make money on the tickets necessarily, right? They make money on the, the concessions. They make money on the things that you need while you're doing the, act, the main activity. And so if the marketplace is completely unencumbered, it, it's flexible, allows people to come in, we think it's going to create a healthier competition for these other services rather than bundle them all together uh, like eBay does, where you, you, you get all those services, but you don't necessarily need them. And you're still paying fees to subsidize other people's usage of it. Whether that model works in the end, who knows? I mean, we're going to certainly try to make a go at it, but um, we, we think that, that that gives people a lot more flexibility and it'll probably decrease frustration. People are, do not like paying large fees, especially if they don't know what those fees are giving them. We don't have to put this in the show, but I am really curious. What does a pair of dirty underwear go for? <laughs> About $31 US dollars. <laughs> 31 US dollars. Good to you know. You can choose male or female. It's, it's your choice. Brian, back in maybe 2013, I want to say there was a, a marketplace called BitMit that was like, or MitBit. Mm. I can never remember. It doesn't exist anymore. It was BitMit. Yeah, BitMit. Yeah, it, it, it was a German uh, Bitcoin auction site, one of the very early ones. But it, yeah, so it was basically like eBay. And actually, even their logo kind of looked like eBay. It had those colors uh, until eBay changed their logo. But um, people would sell all kinds of stuff on there, obviously, they because they didn't have the listing restrictions that eBay had. But then I think eventually they got shut down or they shut themselves down. Part of that was... I think basically because there were products on there that were probably should have, for everybody's protection, be, been sold anonymously, if at all. But there were things on there that they didn't like and they couldn't really police it or stop people from listing them. So, Brian, I guess, are you and the rest of the team like concerned about getting heat about the products that end up getting listed on Open Bazaar? Is there anything you can do about it to police it or would you even want to if you could? Or tell me about that. Our stance on the whole thing has been that we're just creating a software tool, much like you know Microsoft builds a Word document that can, you can write anything you want into it, right? It's how you use it, your risk. That's a somewhat naive kind of quick statement because you know obviously if you're selling something, you can expect people to sell bad things, so you can't just ignore that fact. But the furthest we've gone though is is really building tools or features within the app to allow people to kind of control their visibility of that. So it's like, we allow it to exist because anything can exist, but by default, we kind of hide as much of it as possible and let users kind of discover it. So they would have to like check box if they wanted to see weapons or something? Like, how does that work? The way that it works is, so for instance, on the app right now is if you download it and install it, when you start it up for the first time, by default, you you get you get a couple suggested accounts to to kind of follow, just like on Twitter, and you know those are some stores that we we maintain ourselves. We know what's in there. You only see those listings kind of by default, and then you have this kind of trigger switch that it says, you know, do you want to go to the Wild Wild West? And at that point, it's kind of like anything goes. So that's one example of a feature that kind of 
by default hides you from that stuff. But if you choose to go and, and search that other stuff out, it's fine. So it's much like an internet browser where you can type in a sketchy URL and go visit it, but it's not going to like just come up in your face. Like you have to go looking for it. Exactly. Mm. While we're on this topic, um, what's the threshold for something being removed? Because I noticed while I was looking that there were some things that it looked like were being removed that were inappropriate. And so I, I was curious, since that's a decentralized system, how many, like, does it take 10 people? Is there, is there a number or is it no, something else? No, uh, actually, that's, that's kind of a, a misunderstanding that we've seen a couple of times now, which is that somehow those listings are getting removed. And, and while they are not visible anymore, it's not anything that we or anybody else is doing except for the person who put that content there. So most likely that person pulled their store off the network and just isn't available anymore. There's a button that's either report or block. I'm not looking at it right this second. So what does that do then? So like on the main page, if you're looking at a listing, you'll see it says like about follow block. Like you said, the block button will essentially hide all that content from that store from your application. It does, oh, so it's just local. Folder. It's just local. And then it oh. makes it so they can't chat you and, and stuff like that. Huh, interesting. So there really is no reporting system. Whatever's out there is out there. You just can choose not, you know, you can choose selectively to ignore things. Yeah, it's kind of like a blacklist. Thing. Do you intend to put in any type of like filtering? Because like, again, roaming through it on the first day, there were some things there that were obviously pretty distasteful and you could set up a, you know, like a keyword filter that would pretty much keep stuff out. Uh, so, I mean, like, is that on the right? I, I, obviously, this is your first release. So I'm more curious, is, is that a direction you guys are going in? Yeah, definitely. One of the things that we're very aware of is that this kind of search and discovery experience is not not nearly as good as it needs to be, I think we kind of just blast random listings onto the main page, which is just our, an easy way of getting people to discover what's out there. Now, when you do like a random crawl of any network, you're going to get random listings and it could be distasteful, as you said. So I think, you know, that's, that's one of those areas that, that I kind of mentioned where maybe there's a gap and, and someone can provide a, a valuable service. Like maybe there's a curation type plugin to the application. And we're looking at something like that where, Maybe we crawl the network, we find listings that are appropriate or maybe in some kind of certain market segment, let's say t-shirts, all t-shirts will just be obsessed with t-shirts, you know, and then that way the app can actually connect to those centralized services and get curated listings. And that way they know what they're getting and then you can kind of censor it or moderate it a little bit easier. So this is a lot like right now, like, you know, visiting the internet, right? And having the internet come up, right? And it's just like random pages, just if you pulled the entire network. The reason why that's a thing is because there's no central directory of stores. When you're looking, when you're trying to do the discover different stores thing, what it's doing is it's, what's it doing? It's talking to as many different kind of nodes out there as possible and finding out what stores they have. But because, I mean, so like that's that's the problem, right? There's no central directory here at all. Yeah, I mean, a peer-to-peer network, in order to be efficient, you don't maintain connections to every single peer in the network. Like imagine your computer trying to go out to a million computers. It would never scale, right? So your computer has a subset of those peers. You kind of route through those other ones as necessary. And so when you connect to the network or when you kind of refresh your connection, you'll get random connections to different nodes on the network. and. And that's kind of what we're taking advantage of for, for this, this discover view, which is just a bunch of random listings. So, yeah, and like you said, there's no centralized directory, right? 
there's so much churn. Like people have to run the the storefront on their computer. It has to be online in order for the listing to be available. So if they lose their internet connection or they kill the app and go to sleep or something like that, you got these these peers going in and out of the network. And so what you see at any given time can be pretty pretty diverse. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by B Keychain, the official Bitcoin keychain of the LTB network. If you've read an article about Bitcoin in the last few years, and you've seen a pile of big B coins or keychains, chances are pretty good that you've already seen a B keychain. B keychains are an inch and three-eighths around, and brass plated for a striking and sophisticated finish. B keychains are available online at CryptoAnarchy.us, BTCTrinkets.com, BitcoinNotBombs.org, Amazon.com, or if you're in San Francisco, visit Nakamoto's at 2415 Mission Street. So Brian, let's talk about how OpenBazaar actually works. So every person, as I understand it, and please correct me where I'm wrong here, every person who runs OpenBazaar on their computer is a node in a distributed network of stores. And so when I search and visit like the Open Bazaar store, my computer is connecting directly to the computer at your office running that store, and it never actually hits the what you might call the internet, <laughs> right? That's, that's completely correct, yes. Okay, so you uh, use Bitcoin as the payment layer, but there's no Bitcoin wallet functionality actually built into Open Bazaar. What you're basically doing is you're saying, this is this person's address, send that much money to this person's address. And then when you see that, that it's been sent there on the blockchain, and it's gone directly to the user, when you see that it's gone there on the blockchain, then you update the user. And all this information is transparent, obviously, because it's on the blockchain. So you can do that. So the app itself does actually have a, a kind of a basic wallet. Hmm. And so there are some, it's a bit 32 wallet, but it doesn't, it doesn't do everything you would expect from a normal wallet. Basically, what happens is, is that there's two types of purchase modes in, in OpenBazaar. There's something called a direct mode, which is the buyer just goes and pays Bitcoin into the user's address. And then when they see it's there, they ship it and it's all done, right? Like they already got the Bitcoin. This can sometimes be problematic if you don't trust that person. It could run off with your money and not ship your good and you have no recourse. So you've got a second type of option, which is called a moderated transaction. And what it does is it introduces a third person into the equation. Um, we have these users that serve as moderators on the network, and that can be anyone. And they essentially will take a cut to engage in the transaction if there's a problem. And so the buyer and the seller, when, when, when the buyer is purchasing something, they'll kind of get together and, and agree on a, on a moderator to use if there's a problem. And what happens is a, a two of the multi-sig address is created from all three of you. The buyer would pay into that account. When he receives the goods, then he would release the funds from that account to the merchant. And that way, the funds would kind of sort of be escrowed a little bit to provide additional protection. And so 
the this is where those bitcoins go is into like sort of a temporary wallet that open bazaar controls and there's a reason for that so if i'm sending bitcoin to a merchant directly i may want to issue a refund back from the app if we were to just send the funds into your personal wallet there would really be no way for the app to kind of issue that refund back and so what we do is we send the funds temporarily into like a little open bazaar wallet and then once everything's all done, you've completed the order, um, then you can kind of drop it, you can kind of sweep it into your personal wallet. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, that's actually quite similar to how um, to how we have to do things with the SwapBot vending machine product. Basically, you, you, yeah, if you want to be able to kind of automate some of the stuff that might happen in the transaction, like the possibility of a refund, then you can't send it directly to the user. Okay, so then you never are holding money in your OpenBazaar wallet. Uh, it just kind of acts as an intermediary step so that it's able to automate that stuff. But then once there's actually a payout, then it dumps into the address. So like I can't send Bitcoin from within the open bazaar wallet, right? I mean, you could probably you could get the keys out of our out of the database and put them into a wallet. You could do that, but 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 there's no interface. But for yeah, it. it would have to you'd have to be technical enough to to do that. Yeah. Okay, I got gotcha. you. So the thing about Bitcoin and thus the thing about the layer that you've created is that that's really cool that I continue to be uh, very you know interested in seeing the further developments of is that you don't have to be on the web page or open bazaar page in order to use this type of service because it uses the Bitcoin network as this underlying payment layer. All you really need to know is how much you need to pay of what and what address it needs to go to in order to properly do that. So right now, OpenBazaar is a standalone application, but I have to imagine that you guys have web interfaces in mind for this, of taking these stores essentially out of the application and putting them onto the web in a way that people can, can interact with them in a, in a way that they're more used to. Have you thought about that? Is there a plan? What's your, what's your thoughts? To have something like this to only exist on a, as a desktop app is kind of ignoring a large potential user base, right? Like on mobile and, and the web, like you said. And so, yes, we are looking at ways to do that. Now, this app has been in development for a long time. And so kind of when we started thinking about what it would look like architecturally, there weren't a lot of options out there. But, you know, as we're talking now, there are some new alternatives that are kind of maturing. And, and one that we're really excited about and we're looking at right now is, is IPFS, which is this ability to use a BitTorrent technology to make things available on the web. And so, um, you know, in, in this way, you could allow stores to go offline or not be running an application all the time and still be able to have their data accessible through mobile or, or through the web. And so that's something we're really excited at. And we've already begun work on kind of porting our back end over to that, that structure. So it's quite a haul, but we've done some proof of concept code and it's pretty awesome. I mean, everything, you know, as you publish listings through the, you know, the, the app, they, they can be accessible through the web. You know, as long as there are a couple other users that are kind of seeding that content, much like a BitTorrent, your store will remain up. And that makes it much more resilient, much more accessible. And so that, that's one way that we're, we're looking at making it available that way. Uh, once we do that, then, you know, making mobile apps is, is pretty trivial because you can just point your app to that content. So let me, let me ask this a different way because you, did, you answered my question from kind of an angle that I didn't expect. What I really mean is if I want to purchase something from a store. So you're talking about the resilience of mm -hmm. stores. Right now, your stores live on your computer. And so you're saying that 
you want to be able to allow people to mirror their stores onto the interplanetary file system, which uh, would allow them to then turn off their computer and the, the cloud essentially that's running it in IPFS would be able to keep it up. But really more of what I'm talking about is making it accessible to customers. Yeah. So if I'm a customer that wants to purchase from a store, right now I have to also download the same application I would use to run a store. And then I have to find the store on there and then I have to complete the purchases through that. And the experience isn't bad at all, but it is restricted to this application. So again, what you've created here is a protocol. To my eyes, that seems like something that could be you know, pushed out as an API, basically, that would allow someone to integrate it into, like if eBay, for example, wanted to integrate open bazaar listings or, uh, or you know, Etsy or, or what have you, wanted to, to integrate these or pull things from the curated stream or whatever, then wouldn't they be able to do that via the API and then the payments could just be processed through the Bitcoin network? Because again, that doesn't matter what website you're on since it's on the Bitcoin network. Of course, yeah, definitely. And there are several people kind of already looking at this model. There's, there's this one guy, I mean, he hasn't really been forthcoming about what the name of his upcoming business is about this, but he's created these uh, nodes that can be done through a centralized web, web a- uh, application. So you can go to their account, you know, go to their website, you sign up, you can start buying stuff through Open Bazaar, and they're kind of managing all of the node stuff behind behind the scenes. And like you said, this this software has an API and it's a protocol, so you could you could you could re- completely rewrite the entire software if as long as it conformed to the protocol, and do it in many different ways. Uh, there's some people looking at a WebRTC type of model, so that you could just do it completely in the browser. There's people working on mobile versions using their own custom API. So. There's all kinds of work going on in different directions right now. You know, we're primarily focused on just making sure that this is working, but we're definitely thinking about that. And I think that this year is going to be really exciting. If we, if, 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 if the network keeps growing, we'll definitely be spending a lot of time working on that. So you guys are focused on, I think rightly so, kind of the providing the infrastructure layer to make it so that this stuff is all possible. But these open source projects, and specifically a project like the one that you guys are embarked on, has a lot to do with the types of partnerships and the types of other companies that are interested or looking to get involved in the ecosystem. Um, can you talk to us about any uh, upcoming you know, uh, big players who are looking at the space or who you're talking to uh, about this as a tool who you think you know, might actually start to use the protocol? Because that's, that's really, I guess, the thing that you're looking for right now, is the stores are great. But you need all of these kind of surrounding services that you guys aren't really looking to provide and that would, frankly, make your uh, ecosystem more legitimate because it would be more companies than just the one company in it. And then it can start to be, you know, it starts to gain momentum on its own from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any specific kind of partnerships to, to acknowledge at this point, but there are definitely there are a couple of people that are groups that, that are if we if we name them, everybody would get really excited that are very interested in using it and and in particular in ways that uh, don't seem very obvious from the way that the marketplace is right now but that use the protocol in a in a novel way so i I think you know maybe maybe three months from now this would be a different conversation because i'd be able to talk about this a little bit further but suffice it to say just the the basic purchase and sell model is not the only thing that open bazaar can do there's a lot of different kinds of doors we can open up that I think will expand what people can do on the platform. And those partnerships will, will definitely take advantage of that. Just generally uh, regarding the kind of reaction to your launch, both from people who might potentially use it as businesses against people who 
you know, who are uh, just interested in using it as individuals, how has the response been? Uh, I mean, like, have you run into many problems or has it been pretty smooth? The first week was pretty, uh, it was pretty intense, pretty rough. I mean, we, we've got something We're I think we're just shy of 75,000 downloads right now. It's been a very crazy thing. And, and testing a, a new network out is sometimes hard to do with a small amount of users. Like there's potentially problems that you don't see until it starts to get to scale. And those hit us kind of hard, as well as we have not really done like a mass software release. So there were some issues that we ran into in the first week around uh, Windows applications having some issues connecting to the network and a couple other things. But I think things are starting to quiet down a little bit on that front and stabilize. So we're really excited. The people who have been able to run it successfully and, and do stuff on it have been really, really positive. We've also got a lot of great feedback. And the good thing is, is like people are actually using it. It's not just like speculative kind of peaks. It's, it's people that are like, well, I sold 60 things and this was kind of challenging because you didn't do this or you didn't do that or it would be better if you change this other UI thing. What percentage of the list, I mean, this might be hard to gauge because you have people you follow, but like what percentage of people would you say, just an estimate, are selling stuff like t-shirts and kind of like more straight up products that you would be able to find on eBay versus products that you would not be able to find on eBay? Well, just a plug, if anybody wants to check out the Let's Talk Bitcoin homestead, you can see <laughs> the t-shirts and sweatshirts that we're selling there. Oh, you know what? <laughs> I have one of those t-shirts and a sweatshirt and they are awesome. No, no, the t-shirts are lousy. The t-shirts are lousy, but the sweatshirts are great. I'm happy with I, the sweatshirts, I'm happy but the t-shirts with it, are but lousy. I didn't pay for it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a sale on lousy t-shirts going on right now. <laughs> on an open bazaar only, two for, uh, two for $10, I think. Hey, that's a deal. Well, actually, that, that uh, sorry uh, to, to uh, interject here. Actually, one of the reasons why we haven't sold any is because the computers that I run here, we're on like a weird uh, internet network. And so it turns out most people can't actually access my store. Yeah. And so again, oh. like that seems like the sort of thing that I would, um, you know, like once there's hosted service available, then I, that'll be attractive to me for those reasons, both for stability and because my connection is apparently having a problem, you know, making it work. So that, that's kind of another, I'm sorry, I totally uh, interrupted you, Stephanie. Please restate your question and go ahead. It's fine. I mean, I think, Adam, the stuff you're, you just brought up is great feedback and it's issues that you wouldn't really find out until you actually try it. You know, some things you just can't, you have to just test it, right? And so you're testing it. But my question, Brian, was what percentage of the listings on Open Bazaar overall are things that you think might be found on eBay versus what percentage are things that would not be found on eBay because of their content restrictions in their listings? Just to caveat this answer, um, we know we don't, we don't have any exhaustive way to, to see exactly what's everything on the network. Anecdotally, it seems like it's a pretty ad hoc marketplace. Um, seems like there's, there's a healthy mix of people that are starting stores that already have brands, you know, that are selling brownies and cookies and they're like a bakery store or they're selling custom t-shirts or drawings or whatever. And people that are just like trying to unload stuff like garage sale style. So, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's heavily, you know, a majority of listings are this type. It, it just, it truly seems to be random right now. <laughs> you know, the way that it usually works is like right now, it seems like it's just kind of excited Bitcoin users that are, are jumping on and just they want to sell anything. I think as it matures, there will be these segments of people that kind of start 
virally telling each other about it. They're going back to their forums, you know, for sneakerheads or or gun collectors or whatever it is, and they're going to tell all those people to sell their type of goods, and it will kind of come in spurts. Is what I I envision will happen. But but right now it seems pretty pretty diverse. There's we've seen about I think just over five thousand different listings pop up so far, and um, it's yeah, it's pretty exciting. What is the highest value item that you've seen? Has anybody sold a car on Open Bazaar yet? Yeah, I saw a car for sale. I don't, I don't know if that guy was going to get his. It was about twenty one hundred bucks, and it looked like a beater. But uh, he was, he was <laughs> selling a car. So no, no exciting Teslas or anything yet. But yeah, I did see one. I did see someone else selling, trying to sell their soul for like thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> but um, I don't think they'll have any takers probably. I miss that. That's really funny. You know, I have a lot of great stories about, I have a fond memory of eBay. I used to sell on eBay about 15 years ago when I was a college student. I was just selling junk around my parents' house. And so funny, the weird things that people would pay a lot for. Like my dad had this old snowblower that was like literally 50 years old. And this guy drove all the way from New Jersey to Massachusetts. And there was like a bidding war on this old snowblower. (laughs) And I, when he got there, he had to disassemble it and put it in his trunk. So he arrives and he's, he's driven all night. He came with his, his father or something like that. And I said, why do you want this thing? And he goes, well, they just don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally a tangent. But, you know, that was the wacky stuff that would happen, um, you know, just meeting people and selling things on eBay. So uh, no doubt, you know, a lot of people will have experiences like that with Open Bazaar. And now that can translate into Bitcoin. So, hey, cool. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, Adam, you used the app and, and I don't know how you felt about it. But, you know, for us, it just feels it's so frictionless to get from downloading the app to selling something. Like, there's really no registration process, setting up a credit card and a bank account, all this other stuff, right? Like, you just get to it. Now, that's something that's really exciting about Bitcoin, right, is that you don't have to do all that stuff. You just send your Bitcoin over and, and people are doing that. And it, and it's allowing them to create all these listings for things that I think maybe if they had to jump through all those hoops, they'd just pass on doing it. And, and we're seeing really, really exciting, cool stuff show up. Very cool. I wish it had been around to sell that old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I would have totally used it. <laughs> the reason I asked those questions about sort of like trying to profile the listings that are up there, which is a very difficult task because obviously you don't see each one. Um, and there's lots of them. But I was just sort of trying to get like a snapshot, like to paint a picture of what this marketplace looks like. And what I'm hearing is that it's just very diverse and there's really no limit to how diverse it's going to get. It's probably going to be even more diverse coming up. Yeah, I mean, it's we tried very hard to not come into this with any kind of preconceived notions about what it should be or shouldn't be. The premise is that it's a free market. For us, we want to see it be kind of controlled by the users. We're just here to kind of shepherd it, to guide it in a, in a general direction, make sure it's working. Our hope is that obviously it doesn't just become this very spam-filled marketplace that's unusable, but that it continues to be healthy like this, like that you get to see all these unique listings. I mean, I, I bought some cookies from some guy in Croatia that there's no way in hell I would have ever done that <laughs> unless I was doing wow. this. but. How did he ship them? Uh, I haven't gotten them yet, actually, but uh, other people have purchased and got them and, and said they were great. So, um, and people can leave reviews too. So, you know, they're getting good reviews. That's one of the magical things. I think, you know, as you explained earlier about eBay, is that in the early days, there was nothing like that, right? Like you 
to jump on there and see all this eclectic stuff pop up and, and be like, wow, I didn't know I could get, I didn't know this guy had, uh, you know, the solar lawnmower over, you know, a couple cities over or whatever. You know, we're kind of getting a similar nostalgic feeling from, from looking at this. There's all kinds of stuff that you just never would have been exposed to. And now it's like this global thing too. It's not just, you know, where eBay chooses to allow people to sign up from. You guys raised a million dollars from Andreessen Horowitz uh, last year. Last year or the year before? Uh, about this time last year, yeah. So given that you guys don't have a model at this point that is going to make you a substantial amount of money and you're kind of waiting to see how that emerges, uh, how long can you guys go and continue developing without raising more funds? Are you intending to raise more funds? And frankly, what are the priorities over the next six months for the team? It's not a black box business for, for, for the investors. They, you know, we meet with them regularly and, and they know the direction that we're heading and things that we're talking about and offer suggestions about where to go. So you know, I don't think that the revenue thing is something that I think they, they knew when they got into this that it was going to be a longer term play, right? It's not going to be like we weren't going to come right out of the gate making millions of dollars. So that's all understood. That being said, you know, we've, we've gone a year and a million dollars with, with a good, you know, advanced team doesn't go that, it doesn't go forever. So at some point in the near future, we'll probably have to raise some money to continue going. And I think that that will happen sooner rather than later. This year is going to be all about looking at what OB1 can do from a business perspective to, to start bringing in revenue to take advantage of the excitement and the momentum that the product is, is having. And, so far, everything seems on schedule, seems, seems to be working. So we're really, really excited to bring out something under the OB1 name that will complement Open Bazaar and get people excited. So are you focusing on, um, so I mean, th there's three possible options here. You're focusing on developing the Open Bazaar as a protocol, adding more of those features that are kind of missing from this early version, like you talked about. Uh, you could just be entirely focusing on now that the infrastructure is built at a basic level before you improve the infrastructure, you're going to you know, try to get the other stuff going, provide the value-added services, which also will uh, have a positive impact for adoption. So there's a case to be made there or kind of somewhere in between. Uh, given that you have limited resources, where are you thinking you're going to be putting them? So I, I think, like as you said, uh, a significant amount of our effort is going to still remain on on improving and, and growing Open Bazaar because without a marketplace with customers, there's no one to sell value-added services to. We are actually going to be in the next few weeks publishing a, a detailed roadmap of, of where we'll be going with that. And we plan to uh, make a, a more concerted push into growing the open source community so that we have contributors that are not just on OB1 payroll that are really helping. And we have been very lucky to have a lot of great testers and contributors so far, but we can go a lot further. And I think as we grow, we'll get that. That way we can shift some of our resources over to building OB1 products. And so I would say, you know, if, if we we're doing 100% Open Bazaar now, we probably would shift to more of a 60-40 type model and see what, what we can do there. That will be kind of our approach for the next year. Someone recently asked me this, if it was five or 10 years from now, what, what would we have liked to have accomplished? And I think, you know, if we can get to the point where you walk down the street and you ask somebody about Open Bazaar and they've, they've done at least one purchase or they've been on it, I think that's, that would just be an amazing reality. First and foremost, we hope that, that Bitcoin can have that kind of impact because we stand on the shoulders of giants and, you know, these guys building the Bitcoin protocol have enabled something like this to exist. And 
And so, you know, we grow together and, and that's, that's our goal. That's always been our passion and our vision for everything. So we hope to grow that ecosystem as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Brian, Stephanie, and Adam. This episode was edited by Adam and featured music from Jared Rubens and mindmatter.org. If you develop great software or love sales, stay tuned after the magic word just now for three opportunities at Tokenly. The magic word for today's episode is Kenobi. That's spelled K-E-N-O-B-I. Kenobi, as in Obi-Wan. You've got until the 8th of May to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Okay, folks, here's part two of the Tokenly Online Equity Pitch Update. So the campaign has turned out to be a wild success, and it looks like we'll have as many resources at our disposal as we're willing to accept. With that, I'd like to announce three new positions at Tokenly that we're looking to fill immediately. Positions are 20 to 30 hours a week for now, and we're looking for team members rather than contractors. If you're interested, email adam at tokenly.com to start the conversation and schedule an interview. First, we're looking to fill a business development role. Tokenly has identified rewards-based crowdfunding platforms as the best opportunity for tokens to be useful outside of the world of cryptocurrency speculation. We're looking for someone who spent time in the trenches at an existing crowdfunding platform who can become the face of Tokenly to this market. The voice of our partner platforms, helping us make sure our solutions are really solutions, and basically be Tokenly's ambassador to crowdfunding platforms in general. If you think you're a great candidate, are passionate about what we're doing, but don't have explicit crowdfunding industry experience, contact us anyways. Being a native to that space is a definite advantage, but we're looking for the right person for the role, more so than someone who ticks all the boxes. Then, we have two development positions to fill. Tokenly is looking for a front-end developer to put a great user experience in front of our token tools. We're looking for someone who's passionate about cryptocurrency and token technology with a desire to create world-class user experiences. If you can design front-end visuals using HTML and CSS frameworks and implement them using JavaScript frameworks such as React or Angular, then we'd like to hear from you. Tokenly is also looking for a general developer to build out our suite of token tools. Building a scalable, reliable, and secure cryptocurrency infrastructure is a challenging task. But if you're familiar with systems programming, DevOps, and care about reliable, high-quality code, then we'd like to hear from you. Experience with PHP, the Laravel PHP framework, Node.js, Docker, and Amazon Web Services is a plus. So those are the roles. We're a small, growing, and ambitious team at Tokenly, and we're on a mission to bring cryptocurrency to a broad audience, beginning with the users of crowdfunding platforms. Sound interesting? Get in touch by emailing adam at tokenly.com. Hope to hear from you. See you next time.